space radiation. How we'll beat it, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. Did you pack your sunscreen for that trip to Mars? I'm afraid you'll need something more. Deep space radiation may be the greatest challenge facing humans who want to go to the really interesting destinations in our solar system. In a special report, we'll talk to researchers who are creating new forms of shielding or deflection that will open up deep space for men and women. Bill Nye is at the USA Science and Engineering Festival in Washington, D.C. He'll be back next week. Bruce Betts and Emily Lakdawalla are also part of our festival team, but I was able to talk to them before the big party began. We'll get a What's Up report from Bruce later, but here's Emily with a very proud announcement. She is the Planetary Society's Science and Technology Coordinator, but she's also put in long hours preparing for the launch of the Society's brand new website. Emily, it's a special show all around, so we're just going to take a really quick uh, visit with you to hear about what we hope everybody is now visiting, the new planetary.org. I am so excited about this change. It's been six and a half years since our last site upgrade, and the Internet is just completely different now, and our new site reflects that. It's really a beautiful site. We hope that people will take a look. You have, you and a couple of other people at the uh, Society in particular, have done an enormous amount of work. I mean, what's been involved just getting the blog transferred? <laughs> it's a, a lot of tedious database movement. Find and replace has become my friend. But the point is that we have, I do have the entire blog archive is over. But really, this site is all about looking forward with, with new information huge images, um, great video, and um, lots of interconnected linking so that now you can browse uh, the blog by subject and you can look up great new space images and you can see all the great new space videos and and find them much more easily than you used to be able to. And this goes for the uh, Planetary Radio Archives as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. That's always been a good feature on our old site, and it's going to be even better on the new site because now you'll be able to actually find all the people who have been interviewed on Planetary Radio and see what else they've done with us. And quite a lot of them have been very involved with the Planetary Society in the past. Very cool. I am uh, really looking forward to exploring it some more on my own. Uh, Listen, just one thing to mention out of the blog. You posted it on April 23rd. I love this so much. I have already watched it at least four times. Tell us about this little Voyager cartoon. I'm not even really sure where it came from, but it's a a great animation of the continuing adventures of Voyager 2. And um, let's just say that they involve just about every single fictional (laughs) spacecraft that anybody has ever created. She says it is heart-wrenching, funny, and adorable. I would add brilliant. Watch for uh, George Jetson driving by. Uh, (laughs) Emily, thanks so much, and congratulations to you and uh, your colleagues on this achievement. Thank you very much. She is the Science and Technology Coordinator for the Planetary Society, and she'll be joining us next week from the National Air and Space Museum with Planetary Radio Live. Space is not a friendly place. It's very, very hot, at least when it's not very, very cold. It lacks, uh, what do you call it? Oh, yeah, air. And it's really, really big. Even if we figure out how humans can deal with these challenges, one remains. That seemingly empty vacuum is loaded with lethal radiation, especially when you get beyond Earth's protective magnetosphere. There are those who have speculated that radiation will make robots the only practical option for ambitious missions of exploration. 
Not if our guests today have anything to say about it. I met them about a month ago at the NIAC Spring Symposium in Pasadena, California. NIAC stands for NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts. The office funds research at the edge of science and technology, and even beyond that edge, sometimes. Scores of funding recipients gathered to share their findings over three days. We'll hear from just three who have dedicated themselves to protecting men and women on long-duration flights and continuing that protection as they set up camp on Mars or elsewhere. Sheila Thibault and Catherine Fay are colleagues at NASA's Langley Research Center. Together they are investigating a new type of material that appears to offer great promise, not just as radiation shielding, but as something you can build a spaceship out of. Correct me if I'm wrong, we may actually be able to spin and weave ourselves out of the challenge of uh, deep space radiation. That is true. (laughs) I think that is true. Uh, We are working on an exciting material system. Uh, Kathy is the BNNT expert, and BNNT is boron nitride nanotubes, and I am the radiation shielding expert, and, and, and we have joined forces. Uh, to try to invent a material system that uh, we believe will be dramatic in helping with the radiation shielding problem. And and the reason we think that it will be dramatic is because of what we are developing is not only radiation shielding, but structural. And we can use it for building the structures that go into space. Because as you said, you got to build them out of something. Exactly. Kathy, the carbon nanotubes most of us have heard about Similar structure, but very different material. Yes, boron nitride nanotubes are an insulator. Carbon nanotubes are uh, electrically conducting. Um, There's also new advanced nanomaterials in between, which are very promising, a BCN material. There are many good things about boron nitride nanotubes, but because they are very long tubes, they can be spun, as as you have said, into textiles. And we've already have uh, people interested, like Nanocomp makes carbon nanotube yarns. They are also interested in making boron nitride nanotube yarns and sheets. So when you get uh, the government and technologies from the government transferred to industry where they can scale up things for you and make these large structures feasible, then this is a very good thing for the community. And carbon nanotubes, extremely strong, but you also showed a graph that showed that these, this material uh, is, is also tremendously strong. Yes, we're 95% of the strength of uh, carbon nanotubes, so we're very comparable in that. However, we do have a greater temperature capability, so that puts us in a different class because our materials are thermally stable up to 800 degrees C in air. And very cold as well, I heard. Yes, but the temperature range typically for the space environment is quoted at negative 57C to um, the higher temperatures, and so we operate uh, very well in, in that whole environment that is con- considered for space. Sheila Thibault and Catherine Fay of the Langley Research Center. Shane Westover and his team are at the Johnson Space Center outside of Houston. They are looking at another way of protecting humans from space radiation, but it's a technique that comes with big challenges of its own. Shane, my guess is that, uh, from, uh, certainly for myself, and I bet for my audience as well, the approach that your team is taking may be the one that more people have heard about compared to the other two presentations we heard today, and that, that's this use of superconducting magnets? That's right. This is an age-old concept that's been looked at for uh, many decades, and uh, We want to take a fresh look at it. There's always been a lot of questions in terms of its viability, its feasibility, uh, some unanswered questions in some of the papers. And so 
we wanted to go look at what the state-of-the-art superconductor offers today from, from a similar type of concept and try and address some of the questions that have been out there over the years. No question there are some major challenges which you talked about in your presentation. That's right. Some of the challenges are uh, that you can start getting into very large, uh, massive systems to create some of these shields. And uh, what we see also is that the passive solutions also become very large when you're talking about longer duration missions. That's what we need to look at is, is a comparable with passive solution. Even though these active solutions are much more complex, can we get the mass down and can we uh, have a good handle on the risks associated with the complex system to, to go make this uh, a feasible approach? So major challenges, but I still heard some really fascinating things and the approach. The actual superconducting coil could be a, a sort of fabric. Well, the, the coil itself is, is not a fabric. It's, uh, the, the superconductor is ceramic uh, in nature. It's very thin tapes. However, what we do to hold those tapes in a, in a helical coil fashion is wrap it in a blanket of sorts that's sandwiched. That helps us uh, maintain its shape uh, when we start charging it and also uh, helps us uh, work with an expandability concept that we're looking at here with this second generation high temperature superconductor. The other thing that I kind of went, oh, duh, is that even though you're talking about rather large amounts of current, 40,000 amps I think you said, it's not like you have to have this gigantic generator because you can charge that over time? That's right. Uh, there's a lot of folks that look at these and say, wow, there's going to be a lot of power required to run this system. That's not actually true. Uh, if we use a, a concept that's been used before with some of the low temperature superconductors, you can pump these over days to get to its final charge. And so it doesn't require huge solar arrays or nuclear power to do this. This is, this is very feasible. And we need to talk about thermal concepts. Now that's when the power starts to make a play, and we need to go look at that. That's Shane Westover of the Johnson Space Center telling us about research into using superconducting magnets to deflect space radiation from delicate astronaut bodies. But there appears to be another way to turn around those energetic particles before most of them can get through the walls of a spacecraft or a habitat on the surface of, say, Mars. This technique is being worked on by Ram Tripathi of the Langley Research Center. So we all have some familiarity with static electricity and I miss my old static, uh, I think it was a Wimshire static generator. Are we talking about basically a scaled up version of something like that? Yes, I mean principle remains the same. You know, there's no new principle physics-wise. Of course, similar charges repel each other and dissimilar charges, positive and negative, attract each other. So basic principle physics is the same. You showed the results of some computer modeling which uh, appeared to show that this might be a very effective way to deflect these particles, this radiation. Absolutely. We have done the real calculations, which uh, the environment, the space radiation environment we take is the ones which we use in day-to-day -day study in the space missions which are launched today. So those are the real calculations we have effectively shown that this is the best technology you can have. At the minimum, as I said, that it was minimum... 75% more effective, but it can be even several uh, times more effective than material shielding. So it's extremely effective, and given that 
also that it avoids quite a bit of biological uncertainty of continuous radiation. So that's a bonus, and that's basically the name of the game here. So I'll ask you to speculate if you look out some number of years, and this is now uh, in practice being used to protect humans. What would we actually find on a spacecraft uh, surrounding that, that little habitat where the people are on their way to Mars or wherever? In habitat, you know, in Moon and Mars, this is no issue at all because electrostatic ceiling works perfect. You know, all you can do is kind of place umbrellas there. Oh, so that would be like for a base. Yeah, base, on, on right. A, yeah. But the, on the way, basically, in spacecraft, you can strategically design and basically launch, you know, as I was trying to show, there's that kind of gossamer type. You'd inflate, you know, I mean, basically, because of charges, they get deployed when you want. If you don't want, you just kind of fold them back if you don't want. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of very flexible. It gives all the flexibility there. And also, you can use, you know, where you want to use. So that's extremely viable technology, which flexibility doesn't exist in other active options. Is the power source for this, generating this field, any kind of issue? No, not really, because that's one of the factors, of course, we are trying to optimize. But, you know, power requirement is not, uh, not, not an issue, because remember, the, when these gossamer structures are deployed, we are leveraging against solar sails also there, so that we can roll that power which needed. I try to show that power requirement is pretty minimal, particularly space radiation. So it is well within the grasp, and that's uh, what we are looking here. I just want to finish with that. You used that phrase, gossamer structure, both just now and in your presentation. This is really something that is rather low mass. Oh, absolutely. This is a kind of, uh, if you want to call this, the gossamer structures have been uh, NASA's uh, blue-eyed baby, you know, and they have been used for many other uh, missions, and we are leveraging against the technology because they are kind of flimsy and have very, very, very light structure. You know, the payload is the name of the game. Yet if you don't get off the ground, you are not in business. So you just leverage against that and leverage against the solar sails also. You roll everything together and put two and two together, and then you are in business and ready to go. Ram Sharpathi of the Langley Research Center. When we return, we'll talk with all of these scientists who hope to make space a safe place for human explorers. This is Planetary Radio. I'm Sally Ride. After becoming the first American woman in space, I dedicated myself to supporting space exploration and the education and inspiration of our youth. That's why I formed Sally Ride Science, and that's why I support the Planetary Society. The Society works with space agencies around the world and gets people directly involved with real space missions. It takes a lot to create exciting projects like the first solar sail, informative publications like an award-winning magazine, and many other outreach efforts like this radio show. Help make space exploration and inspiration happen. Here's how you can join us. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. It's amazing what brilliant minds, innovative concepts, and a little money can sometimes accomplish. We're talking with representatives of three teams that are learning how to protect humans from lethal space radiation. On trips to Mars or elsewhere in our vast solar system, each is researching a different technique, thanks to support from NIAC, the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Office. 
After hearing from them individually, I decided to bring them together during a break at NIAC's Spring Symposium in Pasadena, California. Here again are Sheila Tebow, Shane Westover, and Ram Tripathi. After hearing from all three of you about the quite different techniques, the approaches that you're taking to solving this problem, I wanted to get the three of you together because really I think the most important message out of these three presentations is that there's hope for us humans out there on long duration flights. Sheila, is that the feeling you get? That's the feeling that I have. Now we've been studying this for decades and radiation dose or dose equivalent for humans, it's accumulative and it's energy dependent. There's, there are a lot of high energy particles out there. So if you can slow them down, if you can stop them, any way you can go about doing this, uh, that's what we need to do. And I personally believe that it's going to take more than one technique uh, that, that are additive to help solve this problem. It is a huge problem, but I do believe it's, it's, it's a, a solvable problem at this point. Dr. Trapathy, let me pick that up with you because you mentioned as well, we may find that a hybrid approach, as Sheila's mentioning, may be the best solution. Yes, absolutely. The, one of the reasons, you know, the uh, showstopper for uh, long-duration space missions is, uh, is that the biological effects for continuous radiation on human tissues is not known at all. No study exists here on Earth or anywhere, neither in in vitro or in vivo. Given that uncertainty, the best strategy, of course, is to avoid the radiation from going there, so you don't have the problem to start with. So active shielding has to be very important ingredient if we are able to succeed in deep space human missions. Now that, of course, and any spacecraft is always made of material. So material shielding will always be ingredient. You cannot make any spacecraft in air, and then combination of all things is the best solution. But again, I would like to reemphasize that avoiding radiation from hitting the spacecraft, creating the safe zone is the key. Mm. Shane, you also talked about a hybrid approach. Yeah, we look at the uh, the active solutions, and of course there's a lot of mass that's required to hold these magnets in place and to address some of the risks associated with them. Do the three of you see this as something which is uh, not just a, I think you used the term Nyaki <laughs> approach, Shane, <laughs> which everyone loved, got a good laugh out of, but something that w is going to result in a practical means for humans to spend the kinds of times we're talking about, let's say, for a Mars mission in a reasonable time frame, let's say 15, 20 years. Actually, I think that is one of the, the biggest benefits from this NIAC program, is that you, you can uh, receive funding to start at a low TRL level and, and to have... I'm sorry, TRL? TRL, technical readiness level. And this is a scale we use within NASA, uh, and, and the system uh, is rated from TRL-1 up to 9. If it's TRL-9, it's, it's on orbit. It's in space. It, it, it's flying. But when you're back in the laboratory with the concept, that's TRL-1. Mm -hmm. And so the, the NIAC funding starts out with low TRL and, and gives you time uh, to, to really try to solve the problem with a, a long-range innovative solution. And, and not all programs are that way. Some programs, you know, want you to start at a higher TRL 
and and solve it in two years. Uh, but but for the things that that I'm working on and 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 Ram and Shane are working on, we, we need more than a couple of years. Shane, you were going to add something, but I'm also wondering about the role of NIAC in being able to get this early stage research underway. Yeah, I, I, with uh, with what you had asked before, I think what's really important is that many people recognize the challenges associated with this environment and putting humans outside the Earth's magnetosphere. And so you talk about going to Mars, and I think we're going to have to do a lot of learning before we get there. We're going to have to try and demonstrate some of these solutions, uh, try and get smarter with how to work with some of these solutions, and uh, do these at uh, Lagrangian points or maybe uh, much closer asteroids or something, but uh, you know, local deep space. Ram, how important has the NIAC support been to your work? NIAC uh, program has been absolutely critical. It is this uh, program I love most because it gives total flexibility on whatever basically you like to do. And the management is very cooperative in adjusting, you know, basically what you want to do as you go on. Had it not been for NEAC, you know, we would not have been here where we are. And I think if that continues, I, we, I have, we have the know-how, and I'm sure definitely we can succeed and definitely get there sooner. 15 years is the, what you say. I, my target is to get within 10 years. Good for you, and I hope that uh, amongst the three of you, and maybe with all three of you and others, and with support from groups like NIAC, that this is achieved. Thank you so much for taking a couple of minutes and, and giving us a little bit of hope for uh, long-duration human spaceflight. Ram Tripathi does his work on radiation deflection with static electric fields at NASA's Langley Research Center. That's also where Sheila Thibault and her colleague Catherine Fay are perfecting unique radiation shielding materials. And Sean Westover is with the team at the Johnson Space Center that is working with superconducting magnets to deflect radiation. Our thanks to NASA's Innovative Advanced Concepts Office for making them available. I'll be right back with Bruce Betts. Bruce, a pleasure to talk to you once again. As people hear this, we probably have just come back from the uh, USA Science and Engineering Festival, and uh, I hope that people will tune in to hear Planetary Radio Live with you and me and a bunch of other folks. I'm sure we had a great time. <laughs> right. We're recording this a little bit early. Tell us, what's up in the night sky? Venus still uh, dominating over there in the west after sunset, high up, as bright as it gets in its eight-year cycle, which is really, really bright. Uh, we've also got Mars high in the south, dimming, but still looking like a bright star. And if you look, uh, it has a nice pairing with the bright star Regulus. And Mars is on the left, Regulus is over to the right. And we also have a pairing with uh, Saturn, Saturn over in the early evening over in the east. And if you look also to the right from Saturn, you'll see the bright star Spica. It was 10 years ago that the Aqua Earth Observing Satellite was launched. Joined the, the whole group of Earth Observing Satellites in what they call the A-Train. <laughs> Get on the A-Train, yeah. Moving on. Random space fact! Oh, man, I love the passion. I scared the dog. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. You're a good dog. She's back asleep. The Aqua Earth Observing Satellite we were just talking about has a dry mass of about three metric tons. Its buddy Terra, also in the A train, is about four and a half tons. 
it's very common for Earth satellites to be much more massive than their planetary cousins. Uh, even Cassini, which is a behemoth by planetary standards, has a dry mass of about two and a half tons. They, they obviously, they used a heck of a lot of fuel as well getting out there. And most of your planetary spacecraft have dry masses, meaning without the fuel, uh, of around a ton. Fascinating. Thank you. I thought Cassini would, uh, I, I just assumed it would have been bigger than these guys, but uh, it's uh, nice and comfy in low Earth orbit. It is. It, not surprisingly, you can boost a lot more when you don't have to get it out to Saturn. Yeah. Moving on to the trivia contest, we asked you what is unusual about the tail section of the shuttle carrier aircraft compared to normal 747s. How'd we do, Matt? Wow, big response. I suppose it may have had to do with the prize this week, which is the Free Talk and Skype Buddy Video Chat Pack, which has been won by Valerie Lemoyne, Valerie of Stockton, California. She hasn't won for a couple of years, as far as I can tell. She said vertical stabilizers were added to the tail to aid stability. They're hard to miss. A lot of people commented on how really ugly they are. Wow. I have. It's an airplane. It, it's designed to fly. <laughs> yeah, they needed more vertical stability uh, because they stuck that big space shuttle in the middle of the airstream. Other people like John Gallen talked about other modifications that were made, but of course you wanted the ones that were obvious from the outside, and uh, those were those stabilizers. Uh, John, among other things, said that a, a crew escape tunnel system was installed. They took it out after the early approach and landing tests because, get this, they were uh, worried about possible engine ingestion of an escaping crew member. Ow. <laughs> and and there is some other really fun stuff here, uh, like what's going to happen uh, with these 747s? They're going to be used as spare parts for SOFIA, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, working out of uh, Dryden here in California. Got a really interesting comment from Ben Owens, who said that, you know, there were worries about the stabilizers because, you know, the, a similar stabilizer broke loose on Luke Skywalker's X-Wing Starfighter during the... Uh, <laughs> Death Star Trench Run. It was the uh, Battle of Yavin. Fortunately, R2-D2 was there. I don't know if he was on the uh, uh, shuttle carrier or not. Uh, it's not R2, but it is another R2 unit. <laughs> That's good. Probably not as plucky, but uh, I'm sure he did the job. Well, just one other person I want to mention, James Clark, who did get the answer correct but was not chosen by Random.org. But uh, James sent a neat photo because he lives very close to the uh, Kennedy Space Center runway. And so he sent a nice photo of uh, the shuttle on the back of the shuttle carrier because he is, in fact, as we speak, he may have been deployed to Afghanistan. I think we can afford to uh, send James a T-shirt, don't you? Oh, yeah. That, that sounds good. All right. Well, how about next week? All right. For next week, I return to the similar topic because now they're, they're flying Enterprise around. And so my question for you is how many flights did the space shuttle Enterprise make separated from the carrier aircraft. So how many free drops, how many landings did it have on its own? Go to planetary.org slash radio to find out how to enter. And you have this time until 2 p.m. on Monday, May 7, to get us your entry. All right, Guy, thank you once again. All right, thank you, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about rope. Thank you, and good night. You know, it's a little-known fact that R2 used a piece of rope to uh, tie down that stabilizer. He's Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Have you heard about the high-powered asteroid miners? 
The entire space sector is abuzz about planetary resources. The newly announced company that has set its sights on the abundant resources available from space rocks. All they have to do is figure out how to put them within reach and how to get those minerals down here on Earth. About half the company principals and advisors are past guests of this show, and you can bet we'll be hitting them up for a look behind the scenes of their, to say the least, ambitious plans. If I sound skeptical, I don't mean to. Even if it takes 20 years, even if they never achieve their goal, this effort is going to advance space technology and science in ways we can barely imagine, and possibly in ways we can't imagine. I wonder if they'll be looking for some good radiation protection. Join us next week for Planetary Radio Live at the National Air and Space Museum. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and made possible by a grant from the Kenneth T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation and by the members of the Planetary Society. Clear skies. Clear skies.